One of the things that we've wanted to have happen this week is not just have a stampede Sunday, but to have a prayer time as well. So let me lead us in prayer, specifically about these things that are on here, and then after that we'll uh, get into some other things, okay? Would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today desperate for your intervention on behalf of our city. First, we thank you for all your blessings that allow us to bring good to our own citizens and to the rest of the world as well. Our hearts are broken because you're marginalized and dismissed in our society. We're also saddened by the spiritual apathy that now engulfs us. Our satisfaction in remaining religious while failing to live out your word causes us to participate with the forces that destroy our society. Enable us by your spirit to not hide, but to publicly declare and live out your truth in a spirit of love. Father, we appeal to you today with hearts of repentance and obedience. Thank you for hearing our prayers when we call. We affirm afresh your priority in every dimension of our lives. Help us bring you glory by advancing your kingdom in our personal lives our family lives, and in the lives of our churches and the communities where we live. Intervene in all the affairs of our city and country, and we praise you in advance for your answer. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And we do pray at this time of year that things will be a bit uh, governed by God more so than they sometimes are at Stampede. Perhaps God will work and do something, and maybe someone will have some kind of cowboy turnaround this week during Stampede. I hope that happens. First of all, let me say thank you to those who, who uh, prepared and carried off the breakfast this morning. We should show them our appreciation, I think. They did a great job. Thank you to Ed and Karina and those who worked so hard. You know, the one comment that I keep hearing, and Jonathan kind of alluded to this, is the fact that we have beans at our pancake breakfast. And everybody loves the fact that we have beans. I've heard people say that this is the best pancake breakfast in town, and it's all because of the beans. I didn't know it was so easy to make the best pancake breakfast in town. But we've done so by having at least that and some other things. So thank you very much to those who, uh, who worked so hard in that. Twice a year on Stampede Sunday, Shirley said, are you going to tell your jokes this morning? And she said something about going away, you know, if I did or didn't. And so I told her, I said, I said, Shirley, yes, I'm going to tell my jokes. You can stay. So she's decided to stay, despite the fact that I have some incredible jokes to share with us this morning on Stampede Sunday at the beginning of the sermon. Jonathan has heard about these. People have shared the fact that I share jokes sometimes twice a year and at least on Stampede Sunday and the fact that these are perhaps the most humorous jokes that the world has ever seen. For example, where do cowboys cook their meals? On the range. (laughs) What is the best... Huh? Yes, of course. What is the best advice a wise cowboy could give to an offended cow? Turn the utter cheek and move on. Daryl Bean thinks that's hilarious. 
Why did the bow-legged cowboy get fired? Couldn't keep his calves together. (laughs) If a cowboy rides into town on Friday and three days later, later leaves on Friday, how does he do it? On his horse named Friday. (laughs) Exactly. Very good. Heather, she's heard these jokes before. What sickness do cowboys get from riding wild horses? Bronchitis. (laughs) Why did the cowboy ride his horse? It's too heavy to carry. The big, city eastern, the big city eastern lady who was all ready to take a horseback ride said to the cowboy, Can you get me on a nice, gentle pony? Sure, he said. What kind of saddle do you want, English or Western? What's the difference, asked the lady. Well, the Western saddle has a horn on it, said the cowboy. At that, the lady got down off the horse. What are you doing, said the cowboy. Well, if traffic's so thick in the mountains, I need a horn on my saddle. I don't believe I want to ride. Three cowboys of the world are sitting around camp talking about how tough they were and the tails kept getting bigger and bigger. The cowboy from Australia says, I I wrestled a 200-pound crocodile and I made it cry like a baby. The cowboy from Brazil shakes his head and says, I killed a 400-pound steer with my bare hands. The cowboy from Texas just smiled and kept stirring the campfire with his bare foot. Where's Miles? He's got his boots on. Thanks, Miles. The visitor said, Wow, you have a lot of flies buzzing around your horses and cows. Do you ever shoe them? The cowboy said, No, we just leave them barefoot. A police officer saw a man dressed as a cowboy in the street, complete with a huge Stetson hat, spurs, and six shooters. Excuse me, sir, said the police officer. Who are you? My name's Tex, officer, said the cowboy. The police officer said, are you from Texas? Nope, I'm from Louisiana. Louisiana, so why are you called Tex? Because I hate being called Louise. (laughs) What do you call a frog whose (laughs) mother... What do you call a frog whose mother wanted him to be a cowboy? Hop along. (laughs) A cowboy and a hard rock biker. Okay, a cowboy and a hard rock biker are on death row and they're to be executed the same day. The day comes and they're brought to the gas chamber. The warden asks the cowboy if he has any last requests, to which the cowboy replies, I sure do, warden. I'd be mighty grateful if you'd play achy, breaky heart for me before I go. Sure enough, cowboy, we can do that, said the warden. He turns to the hard rock biker. And you, biker, what's your last request? Can you please kill me first? Ta-da! <laughs> now, on a more serious note, I'd love it if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. And maybe when somebody, I didn't look at the page number in the Pew Bible, when somebody gets there in 1 Samuel 15, if you're in a Pew Bible and you could shout at the page, that would be great. 1 Samuel 15. 201, thank you. Last week, we saw how God blessed Israel with his grace. 
even though out of their fear they rejected him as their directed ruler and they wanted an earthly king. And so you remember, Saul was not necessarily a godly man, but he looked good. And so God gave the Israelites Saul because they wanted a king. They were specifically, in many ways, rejecting God's direct kingship. And what was amazing to me, and it still is, is that God takes Saul and plants his spirit on him and and makes him what, in one sense, what God wants him to be, which is absolutely a grace-filled act. God did not have to do that. In fact, you'd think, as we said last week, if it was a human being, if it was me, I probably would have done exactly the opposite. Okay, you want an earthly king? I'll give you an earthly king. And let him flounder. Let him make the mistakes. But God doesn't do that. Instead, he goes and he plants his spirit in Saul. And it says that Saul is numbered among the prophets. Because God has given his spirit to Saul. And it says at one point in the text, as we saw last week, that God changed his heart. And made him a different man than he would be otherwise. Because God blessed him and put himself inside Saul. And all of that was an act of God's grace. He didn't have to do any of it. Well, of course, because, or I should say, despite God's graciousness, things didn't go so well. Saul still continued to act like a human being. And so we pick up the story where the Amalekites have been ruthless to Israel and God wants Saul to do something about it. Chapter 15, and I want you to look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his height for... Oh, sorry, wrong chapter. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I'm grieved that I've made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Can you imagine? The king sets up a monument in his own honor. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. You can just hear Saul trying to justify his behavior. It's the soldiers who did this. It was almost uh, in contrast to my instruction. And after all, when they did it, they got these in order to make sacrifices to the Lord. When all the while, he knew that wasn't true. And he knew that they were supposed to destroy all of it. Verse 16. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. 
tell me, Saul replied. It'd be interesting how he said that. Tell me. (laughs) Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And in my notes in my own Bible I wrote, because they didn't want to sacrifice their own. Because that's what the Jews were supposed to do. They're supposed to sacrifice the best of their own. But why would they do that when they can capture some from somebody else and sacrifice those instead? Verse 22, but Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And then he starts to tell the truth. I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Verse 30, Samuel said, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Now, here's what's fascinating. Look what happens now. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him confidently, thinking, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. That's Samuel who did that. It doesn't say Saul did it. Samuel did it. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, this is fascinating to me. The whole story has some real interesting elements. But what I want to just point out this morning is just the fact that Samuel ends up going back with Saul to worship. And that seems like a relatively minor detail. It'd be easy to overlook that. Why does he go back? The only only thing I can think of is that just like God, it's an act of grace. Samuel says, I'm not going back with you. 
You have blown it. I'm not about to go back there. But then he does. Why? And I think it has something to do with the fact that there is some kind of repentance on Saul's part. Saul admits his sin again in verse 30. I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. And Samuel does. He's already said, God does not change his mind. God is not going to relent here. And then Samuel does. And it just seems to me like an act of grace. Is that the way we treat people? Is that the way that you and I treat people? I think we should. It is sometimes difficult for us to be as gracious with others as we should be. And especially when we know that we've got them. We know they're guilty. They know they're guilty. We know they're guilty. And we've got them. And at that point, it is so human of us to say, I've got you. You deserve what I'm about to give you. And in fact, God would not relent here. And so we sometimes find it difficult within our hearts to be gracious. But God, his prophet, are gracious. We need to be as well. Now, this is not the only way in which God shows this kind of grace in the story. I want you to turn to chapter 16, verse 6. God does say, and he does, in fact, carry this out. He does take away from Saul the kingship and says that there's going to be another. But do you remember who the text says is guilty of the sin? Like, it's not just Saul who makes these decisions. There's a whole army of people who choose to not honor God. There's a whole army of people. There is a whole nation of people who don't follow after the Lord in the, in the life of Saul, in the stories of Saul working with the people. And so if there's anybody guilty, which there is, it's all of them. They're all guilty. God has them. And it looks like at this point, there shouldn't be grace. But there is. And God's attitude about his people, and certainly about the one who is going to rule Israel, all of that gets entered into by God's heart. God makes decisions here. Based on how he feels about his people, how much he loves them, how much he wants the right thing for them. 
and based on who he is and the things that he values. So in verse 6 in chapter 16, it says, as now they go to look for a new king, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Remember what he did before in considering who Saul was. His appearance and his height were important. But now that's not so important. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But what does the text say? But the Lord looks at the heart. And what's fascinating to me is it's not just that the Lord looks at the heart to value it. The Lord looks at the heart to forgive it as well. Because when he looks at the nation of Israel, despite their sinfulness, he thinks that there's still something about them that craves after him, that wants to be his people. And so he values them, and he loves them, and he offers them his grace. Verse 8 says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. And you can almost hear him say, And you wouldn't want him anyway. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Then Samuel went to Ramah. And do you... Do you get the irony of that second to the last sentence there? From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power? Those are virtually the exact words that it said God had done to Saul. That God had come upon Saul with his spirit. And there's a part of me that thinks, God, fool me once, but you can't fool me twice? Are you not getting this? You put your spirit on Saul, that didn't go so well. Now you're going to put your spirit on David, and you're going to hope that it will go well? What's the problem here? And while David has a heart that calls God to do this at the same time, isn't this another instance of God simply being filled with grace and saying to his people, yes, I did give Saul a chance. Yes, I did put my spirit on Saul. Yes, I was hoping for the best. It didn't turn out. But yes, I am willing to do this again. And so my impression is that all of these claims that we make about this huge difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are a little bit inflated. Because what I see in the New Testament 
is not much difference in the sense that God keeps giving his people a second chance. Namely, of course, with the new covenant comes in the person of Jesus. That's our chance. But that's who he is. This is not out of character for him. He just keeps giving his people another opportunity to know him and love him and serve him because he is a gracious God. And he's the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New. And I love that about him. We sometimes act like there's that difference. I'm not convinced. So in your life, there are at least two things that I think we can really think about coming from today. One is that we need to be gracious with others because God is gracious with us. Forgive as church. It's been forgiven you. As we have received forgiveness, that's the way that we're supposed to forgive. Have we received forgiveness from God? We have. And so he wants us to be gracious to others because we have received forgiveness from him. And my guess is that in your life, there is somebody who has forgiven you. You need to be a forgiver. God, if no one else, has forgiven you. You need to be a forgiver. And so in addition, there is someone in your life that you need to forgive. Just, I'll let you just think about that for a moment. There is somebody in your life that you need to forgive. Forgive them. Forgive them. And then secondly... We need to recognize that God was so gracious to Israel that we know He's gracious to us as well. And that kind of God who is so gracious to us requires from us, demands from us, calls out of us some kind of response. The question today is not how do we respond to a God who punishes sin, which we think of as the God from the Old Testament. The question is how do we respond to a God who never endingly extends his grace to his people, ultimately giving them his son? He is so gracious to us. We need to respond to his grace. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes when we think of these Old Testament stories, we think of you differently than we should. We think of you as this one who just wanted to punish or send off into captivity or recant of an appointment as a king. And yet, God, when I read these stories, what I see is you being gracious to your people abundantly and consistently. Far beyond what we as humans are often gracious. 
And so, Father, we pray that our graciousness to others would be like yours. We pray that forgiveness and grace offered would be our attitude and what we present to others. Help us to be a gracious, forgiving people. But then I pray especially today, God, that there would be someone who perhaps has a difficult time receiving and accepting your grace and forgiveness. I would pray today that they would. Father, help everyone here, every soul that stands before you. Help us to see your abundant, abounding grace and help us to receive it with all of our hearts. Father, we do want to have great hearts before you like David had a great heart. But we also know that these these hearts that we have before you are, are only great hearts because you're great and because we perceive your greatness. Because you've offered your greatness. You've offered your wonderful grace. And that's what transforms our hearts. And so transform us today as we're impacted by the fullness of the grace that you've offered to us in your Son. It's through Him that we pray. Amen.